If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and be making your way to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to be in the Old Testament tonight as we pick back up with the second installment of our series that we're calling Identity Crisis, where we're seeking to truly know and understand who we are in Christ. And it really serves to our advantage. I want to say this as we get started tonight. It really serves to our advantage when we come to God's Word ready and expectant to receive. And so I really hope that you're ready to hear from him tonight, believing that what he has for you can truly be life-changing. God's Word is truly powerful, and it truly does have the power and the potential to change your life, but you got to have your heart in a position where you're ready to receive what he has for you tonight and truly believe that what he speaks into your life has the power to change your life. And so with that being said, I want us to jump into our text for tonight, and it's a pretty sizable portion but I want to go ahead and get it all in here at the beginning. And so as we dive into the text, what, what we'll see as we get started is that King Solomon, who is David's son, is being visited by this woman that the text refers to as the Queen of Sheba. And she had heard of Solomon's magnificent kingdom, and she had heard of his great wisdom, and it really sounded too good to be true. And so she just had to see it for herself. And sometimes you encounter things like that in life, as well, where somebody begins to describe something to you, and it really just sounds too good to be true, and the only way that you're going to believe it is if you see it for yourself, so that's kind of where she's at. She's heard of his kingdom, she's heard of his wisdom, and she wanted to go and see it for herself to see if the stories were true of what she had heard about King Solomon. So as we pick up in First Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 1, God's word says this, now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. So what she saw, when she saw Solomon's kingdom, when she saw his wisdom, it truly took her breath away. She was so taken aback by it. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Haram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants, from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. 
And King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of each went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon, which was the name of his palace, in other words. And the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Aram. And once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold and silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as a sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had spoke to the people of Israel. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. I want you to share the subject of this message to somebody sitting next to you. So look at the person beside you and tell them it's time to break the mold. When I was a kid, Mattel had come out with this toy that they called Creepy crawlers. Is anybody familiar with that? I mean, you got to go back into the 90s, so most of y'all have never even heard of this. But Mattel came out with this toy, and they called it Creepy Crawlers. And it was this little open-faced oven that came with a bunch of different molds and this stuff called plastic goop. And so what you would do is you would pour that goop into whatever mold that you wanted. And they had all kinds of different ones. Some were bugs or insects. Some were snakes or scorpions. I had some that were dinosaur shaped. And so you would take that plastic and you would pour it into that mold. And then you would put it into that little oven to bake. And after a couple of minutes, that plastic would harden. And you could take it out of the oven and you would have the shape of whatever mold you had poured the plastic into. So you would have your little plastic insects or dinosaurs or bugs or whatever it's funny how easily entertained you are as a kid because they didn't really do anything I mean it's not like they had any significant use when it came to playing with them it was just fun to make them I guess but that that story I, I share it with you because there's a point behind it and it's relative to our message tonight when we started this series I gave you some homework to do you remember what it was I wanted you to take an identity inventory. I wanted you to examine your own life. I wanted you to look at how you identify yourself and see 
what your identity is being built from or what your identity is being molded by, in other words. Because as followers of Jesus, the source, the shaping of our identity shouldn't be molded by anything other than Him. Let me say that again. As followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, then your identity, the source of your identity, the shaping of your identity, it shouldn't be molded by anything other than Him. But I know what the temptation is, right? The temptation is to shape our identity. The temptation is to shape who I am by pouring myself into the wrong mold sometimes. And I want to say this here at the beginning, and it's something that I want you to hold on to the rest of this night as we work through this message. What you pour yourself into is often what your identity comes out of. And so using Solomon as an example, I see some bad molds that he began pouring himself into that ultimately began shaping his identity. Molds that I believe a lot of us might be pouring ourselves into as well. So as we look at these, if any part of your identity is found in them, then the first step for you to take is quite simply to break it. And I need you to be completely honest with yourself tonight and do some heart searching because we're going to look at some of these things that we have a tendency to pour our, in, our identity into. And if you're not honest with yourself, if you try to skirt past these things, then you're never going to get to a place where you stop pouring yourself into the wrong things and start pouring yourself into the right things. And so you need to be dead level honest with yourself and with your own heart and realize if I'm pouring myself into these things, I've got to get to a place where I, where I break those molds in my life so I can begin to reestablish who I am in Christ. And so this first mold that we see Solomon pouring himself into is what we're going to call the status mold. So at the very beginning of this story, if you go back to chapter 10, in the very first verse, we see that what intrigued the queen from the get-go about Solomon was his fame. It says, now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, so she had heard about his profound wisdom, and she had heard about his great wealth. And Solomon, I believe, had begun to relish in that status. He began to relish in his popularity. He began to relish in his fame and the name that he had made for himself. And he was pouring himself into that mold, delighting in the attention of man, delighting in all his accomplishments, delighting in all the achievements that he had garnered for himself throughout his life. And I think some of us here tonight are no different than Solomon in this area. In the fact that our identity is being shaped by our status. And so you pour yourself into that mold just like Solomon was doing here. You crave popularity. You crave the attention of the people around you. You want to make a name for yourself through achievements and through accolades and through accomplishments. And, and I get it, right? This is an easy trap to fall into because I've been there. I grew up being an athlete. I've got a competitive spirit unlike anything that you have ever seen. And so my whole life was based off of performance. My whole life was based off of achieving the next award or getting the next accolade. And so I began to build my identity off of those things. That's how I became recognized. That's how I wanted to be seen as somebody that was successful, as somebody that carried status. And some of you... I think dream about how satisfying it would be to have that blue check mark on your Instagram account. Some of you are constantly obsessing over and pursuing status through relationships. 
Because you don't know how to have an identity apart from one. And so you obsess and you pursue status through relationship because for some of us, we think that singleness is like some kind of disease that we have to get rid of. And so you're constantly pursuing, you're constantly obsessing over your status in a relationship because you don't know how to form an identity of your own. You've got to be with somebody. And so you pursue and you're molded by that status. And just in case you think, that, well, maybe this one doesn't apply to me and you're trying to skirt around it a little bit, let me give you a little, a little identifier so that you might can know that, that you're struggling with pouring yourself into a status mode because a person whose identity is molded by status is constantly concerned with what others think and is all the time trying to impress the people around them. So if you're pouring yourself into a status mode, you've got to break it. The next mode that we see Solomon pouring himself into, we're going to call that the possession mold. Solomon had vast amounts of wealth, which began as a blessing from God. It's something that God gave as an extension of a blessing to the wisdom that Solomon had asked God for. So God gave him wisdom, and on top of that, he gave him financial blessing. And so it started out as a blessing from God, but Solomon turned it into an obsession. And it's funny because in our flesh, we're so guilty of this in so many different ways. So often we'll take blessings from God and turn them into the obsessions of our life. And we're misguided in doing so. But the text breaks it down for us a little bit to give us an idea of just how filthy rich Solomon was. It says that in one year, he took in 666 talents of gold. Now, you may not have any idea what a talent is, and I wouldn't expect you to. And so I want to give you a little bit of a breakdown to help you understand just exactly how rich Solomon was, just exactly how much money this guy had. And gold is one of those things that it's kind of hard to calculate the value of because it changes from time to time. So let's do this in weight. Solomon took in 666 talents of gold, which would translate into 49,950 pounds or 25 tons of gold and that wasn't even all of it the text says that's just part of the sum that he received that doesn't even include the business that he had from other merchants from other kings from other business people from other exporters that were sending in gold to his kingdom 25 tons of gold the text tells us that he made gold shields who in the world needs gold shields but he made 500 of them. And out of those 500, it required him to use 2,900 pounds of his gold to form those shields. 2,900 pounds. Talk about having more money than you know what to do with. And his house was full of it. Text also tells us that his, that his house was full of gold vessels. So just imagine walking in to Solomon's place, and he sits down for a meal, right, and he walks into the kitchen, he opens up his gold cabinet, and he pulls out his gold plate and his gold cup, and he sits down at his gold table to have his meal, and he eats it with his gold fork and his gold spoon, and then afterwards when he's done and his body's had some time to digest the food, he has to head over to his gold toilet to sit down and with his gold toilet paper to take care of things, you know what I'm saying, like everything in Solomon's house was made out of gold. He obsessed over it. 
He had a throne that was made of ivory, but that wasn't good enough for him either. So he had to overlay it with gold. So gold, gold, everything around him was gold. He was obsessing over these possessions. He was obsessing over his fortune. And so now his identity is being shaped by those things. More, 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 more. It was never enough. And it wasn't just that he needed gold. It's that he also began to build his own personal zoo. It tells us that he had apes and peacocks and mules and horses and all these other different things. So Solomon's identity now is being formed by his fortune. When we first started, his identity was being formed by his fame. And now his identity is being formed by his fortune. And his main concern is now just doubling his money everywhere that he goes. And maybe you struggle with this mold. The temptation in your life is to put your identity in your bank accounts. To see how much money that you can accumulate for yourself to drive the nicest car, to live in the biggest house, or to wear the finest clothes. And so now who I am is driven by what I have. Maybe, maybe you say you don't have this struggle, and I get it, right? We're a bunch of poor college students, Trey. You, you, you're missing us on this one. This one's not really hitting home for us. We don't struggle with putting our identity in possessions because we don't have any. I don't have anything in my bank account, so I don't struggle with wanting to be identified by that. I'd rather just forget about that, honestly. And so you say, you know, I think you missed me on this one, Trey. Well, let me point something else out to you. And I want you to search your heart on this because if you chose a career calling purely based off of pay potential, then you need to be careful in the future. You need to be careful in the future. And let me just give you a little bit of advice. You know, you're not going to stay in college for forever. Sooner or later, you're going to graduate and you're going to begin a career of your own. And you're going to start making some money and you're going to encounter temptations in that season of life that you've never encountered at this season of life right now. And so you're going to look around one day at all your friends and they're making six figures and guess what you're going to desire all of a sudden? That six-figure salary. You're going to look around they're going to be living in the nicest house and you're going to have a trailer and then the next thing you know, what are you going to desire? To live in the nicest house. You look around and your friend's going to be driving up in a Beamer while you've got a Nissan Maxima and the next thing you know, you're going to be designed to drive around a nice car like they have. And so your identity will be tempted to be poured into this possession mold. Let me give you a little bit of an identifier of someone who struggles with shaping their identity off of possessions. A person whose identity is molded by possession is never satisfied. It's never enough. There always has to be more to be gained because it's never enough. 25 tons of gold for Solomon still wasn't enough. So if you're pouring yourself into a possession mold, you've got to break it. And the next mold that we see Solomon pouring himself into, we're going to name the image mold. And so the text shows us as we got into chapter 11 that Solomon had 700 wives. 700! 700 wives 300 concubines, and one really bad STD, more than likely. But in all seriousness, the guy was probably a pretty good-looking dude. I would have to imagine that Solomon put some effort into his image. I would have to imagine that Solomon put some effort into his physical appearance because you don't get that popular with the ladies without having some physically attractive qualities. Now, I know he was a rich dude, but let's give Solomon the benefit of the doubt. Not all of these women were probably gold diggers. He probably truly attracted some of them with his looks. 
And we know that he was a good-looking man. Anyway, because if you were to go over to the book of Song of Solomon and see the ways in which Solomon's lover describes him in that book, you would get the gist. Solomon was a good-looking guy. And I think as a man, he loved that attention. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't love that attention? Who doesn't like to be desired? Who doesn't like to feel like they're wanted? To feel like they're attractive? And I think for Solomon, this just became another mold that he poured himself into. And I think this is where some of us are tonight. I think some of us are in this place where your identity is molded by your image. And whether you can consider yourself fit or fat, I mean, it doesn't really matter because when your identity is molded by your image, then your joy and your self-worth is always determined by what you see in the mirror. And you constantly look around and compare yourself to the people around you. Why can't I look as good as them? Why can't I have that body? Why can't I have that figure? Why can't I have those genes? And so you constantly compare yourself to the people around you. Let me give you an identifier of someone who struggles or someone whose identity is being molded by this image mold. A person whose identity is molded by image struggles with insecurity and self-confidence. And so if you're pouring yourself into an image mold, you've got to break it. And then the last mold that we see Solomon pouring himself into is a little bit different. And you don't see this in the text that we just read. You've got to go back into chapter 2 of 1 Kings to find this. But this is the parent mold. When Solomon stepped in as a king, he had some big shoes to fill. Because what you need to understand is that his dad, David, was the standard in Israel for what kings were supposed to look, be, and act like. God called David a man after his own heart. And so these, was the, these were the shoes that Solomon was stepping into. And as David is dying, listen to what he says to him in, in 1 Kings chapter 2. He calls Solomon in with his last words. He's going to give his son some advice. And I want you to listen to what David says to his son in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke to me, Concerning, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not like a man on the throne of Israel. So as David is dying, he calls Solomon, his son, in, and he tells him these words. And, and I don't know if you could sense this or not, but I sense a tremendous amount of pressure that David is putting on his son Solomon. And he calls him in and he tells him, son, my time's about to be up. And you're going to take over. And I need you to make sure that you, that you do things the right way. And it's almost like David saying to Solomon, don't you screw this up for me, Solomon. God made a promise to me back when he established my throne that as long as my sons walked with him, as long as my sons stayed right with him and followed his commands and lived holy and righteous lives, that I would never lack having a man on the throne of Israel. So don't you screw this up for me, Solomon. Don't you mess this up. I've worked hard to earn this position. 
I've walked in the right way before God. David kind of acts like he didn't have his own bag of issues, like he didn't have his own mess-ups during his time as king. But he's putting this tremendous pressure on Solomon. Don't you mess this up for me, Solomon. And I think part of Solomon's identity became molded by who his dad was and the expectations that he placed on him. And the same might be true for some of you tonight. Your identity is molded by your parents' expectations. Your identity is molded by the person they want you to be. And a person whose identity is molded by their parents is usually more concerned with living out the call of their parents over the call of God on their life. So if you're pouring yourself into this parent mold, you've got to break it. You've got to break it. All these different things that we're tempted with to pour ourselves into to shape our identity, you've got to realize that none of them hold up. And if changes are going to begun to be made in your life concerning your identity, you've got to realize this. You've got to get to this point to where if you realize I'm pouring myself into some of these things, none of them will hold up. None of them will last. And so what happens is as you continually pour yourself into these things, and as they continually crumble time and time again, you have to constantly reestablish your identity. And that gets so wearisome. That gets so tiresome, having to constantly reestablish who you are because the things that you're pouring yourself into won't hold up. And we're all prone to fall into this trap, so don't feel like all hope is lost for you if you find yourself stuck, if you find yourself pouring, pouring your identity into the wrong mold. Don't feel like that it's all over for you because we all are prone to fall into this trap. Solomon was given wisdom from God. That was what he was known for. He was known to be one of the wisest men, probably the wisest man, the wisest king to ever walk on the face of this earth. He was given wisdom from God, and look where he's ended up. Look at, look at how his life has turned out right now. Look at all the things he's pouring himself into, and he had the wisdom of God. And do you know what that tells me? That tells me that you can have God-given wisdom and still make self-driven decisions. But I'll tell you something else about Solomon. If you go read through the book of Ecclesiastes sometime, you'll find out that Solomon eventually figured out that all these things that he had poured himself into were worthless. That's how he described it in that book. All the possessions, all the status, the money, all the women, all the sex, the image, all the things that he began to pour himself into, he later on figured out that it's worthlessness. It has no value. That's what it means to be worthless. For something to be worthless means that it has no value. So you've got to realize that these things that you're pouring yourself into, if it's anything other than Christ, it's worthless. And if you're pouring yourself into any of these molds that we just talked about, you've got to break them. And then you've got to take this next step. Once you break it, it's so important that you replace it. When you break these bad molds, it becomes vitally important that you replace those molds. Well, what do I replace it with? Well, you take those bad molds that you've broken in your life and you replace it with the mold that Christ has already formed for you. And it follows the same pattern. It follows the same things that we've talked about. So all these things that the world tempts you to pour yourself into, to shape your identity from, Christ says, I've already got that established I've already got a mold formed. 
through myself for you to pour yourself into and be shaped by it and have an identity from it. So let's talk about status. Let's talk about status because Christ has given you a status. When you're found in Him, He has given you a status. And when you pour yourself into that status, you begin to see some things. And here's what you begin to see. You see that in Him you have a name. So I don't have to make a name for myself. In Christ you have a name, and it's called being a child of the King, John 1.12. In Him your status is that you're the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. In Him your status is righteous and holy, Ephesians 4.24. In Him you're chosen, Colossians 3.14. In Him you have a status of being a citizen of heaven, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And so when I'm in Christ, I don't have to make a name for myself because I carry His name. I don't have to be known by others because I'm known by Him. But that's only when I learn to put my identity in Him. So I don't have to put my identity in the things of the world. I don't have to put myself in the status of the world because it just continues to fail me time and time again. I put my identity in Christ and the status He tells me that I have is that I'm a child, I'm a light of the world, I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm chosen, I'm a citizen of heaven. What kind of better status are you looking to achieve than that? Let's talk about possession. Let's talk about possessions a little bit. If you want riches, if you want fortune, then you need to pour yourself into Christ. Not into the riches, not into the fortune that this world claims that you have to have. And here's what I want you to see is that if you'll dive into the things of God, if you'll understand who you are in Him, you'll find out. You might, be, you might not be rich by worldly standards, but when you are in Christ, you have riches that go beyond worldly standards. And so if you want riches, if you want fortune, then pour yourself into Christ because with Him, you are a co-heir. You know what it means to be a co-heir with someone? It means that you inherit everything that that person inherits. And so God's Word tells me that when I'm in Christ, I'm a co-heir with Him, Romans 8, 17. In Him, you inherit heaven, Ephesians 1, 11. Everything that He has is yours, John 17, 10. Jesus is speaking to His disciples and He says, everything that I have is yours. In Him, what you gain will never spoil, perish, or fade. 1 Peter 1, 14. So followers of Jesus, they don't don't need more money. We don't need nicer things. We don't need all this stuff from the world. Jesus hasn't called you to some impoverished life. So many people think to give up their lives, to surrender their lives, to trade their lives in, to be found in Christ, is to give up everything, to forfeit everything this world has to offer, and to miss out on all of it. But that's not the case. Jesus doesn't call you to some impoverished life. He calls you to an abundant life. You're not poor. Men and women of God are not poor. Listen to me. I want to share this with you. Poverty only exists in the life of a believer when you fail to realize the riches you have been given in Christ. The only time as a, as a son or a daughter of the king that you will experience poverty in your life is when you yourself fail to realize the riches that you have been given in Christ. Let's talk about image for a little bit. If you want to establish identity through image, then pour yourself into Christ. So many of us are concerned about what we look like. So many of us are concerned about our physical appearance and our joy and our self-worth and our self-confidence is driven off of how we appear in the mirror. But what does God have to say about that? 
Jesus has already established an image for you in Him. In Genesis 1.27, it says that you were created in His image. So there's nothing wrong with your image. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14. You were knitted together by God, Psalm 139.13. And you considered His masterpiece, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. So when I understand the identity of my image in Christ, then guess what? My joy and my self-worth, it doesn't fluctuate every time I walk past the mirror. What better image can you seek to attain? You have been created in the image of God. You walk around on this earth as your image bears. Don't let the world tell you that you've got to look a certain way. Some of you obsess over the way in which you look. You're disappointed and you're disgusted with yourself because you don't look a certain way. Some of you, you obsess and so you spend time in the gym because your figure is never good enough. And I'm not saying that it's not good to work out. I'm not saying that you don't need to take care of your body. Absolutely you need to. But your body isn't your idol. Your body isn't your God. You're created in the image of God. He tells you that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. He knitted you together with His own hands. He considers you His masterpiece. You're His masterpiece. What, what more of an image could you seek to attain? When is it not good enough to be the image of God? To be knitted together by Him. To be His masterpiece. When I understand my identity in the image of Christ, I don't have to worry about my joy or my self-worth fluctuating because of how I look. Because I see myself in Him. And I portray His image. Let's talk about the parent mold real quick. And how that relates to our identity in Christ. You don't have to let your parents set the plans of your life. Now, I'm not saying that after the service is over with, you call your mom or your dad, and you're like, hey, mom and dad, we need to have a talk. I went to church tonight. And I was sitting there listening to the message, and my, my pastor told me that I don't have to be the person that you call me to be, and I don't have to live up to the expectations that you've placed on my life. So I just wanted to let you know that, number one, I'm quitting college. I'm not going to be joining the family business, and I'm moving about 600 miles in the opposite direction. So see you, bye. I'm not saying that you do that. But I'm saying that you don't have to let your parents set the plans of your life because God has plans set for your life. And when I'm in Christ, I begin to understand that. Jeremiah 29, 11 says that he has plans for me and he plans for me to prosper in them. Philippians 3, 12 and 14 says that he has a calling for me to live in. So God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. He has a calling for you to live in. You don't have to be identified by the lives that your parents have lived either. Some of you in here are walking around thinking that you're going to grow up to be your mom, grow up to be your dad, and they might not be the best person in the world. You might not have grown up in the best family situation. People might have even said, well, you're going to, I can tell you right now, she's going to grow up to be just like her mama. Or he's going to grow up to be just like his daddy. Alcoholic, abusive, good-for-nothing bum, lazy, worthless. You don't have to live into that. You don't have to carry the identity of your parents because God has set you apart. And when you are found to be in Him, He's got a whole separate purpose for your life. He's got a whole separate calling for your life. He's got a whole separate destiny laid out for your life. And He gives you the power to overcome and to break generational bondages, to break generational curses. Just because your dad was an alcoholic doesn't mean that you have to be. 
Just because your dad might have been abusive doesn't mean that you have to be. Just because your mom struggled in her marriage doesn't mean that you have to struggle in yours one day. And so when I pour myself into the identity that I have been given in Christ, I don't have to be known by the world because I'm known by the Creator of it. I don't need temporary riches to try and satisfy me because I've got eternal treasures stored up for me. My image doesn't determine my self-worth or joy because I know I'm a wonderfully made masterpiece who has been given my own purpose, who has been given my own calling, who has been given my own destiny to live in. To have your identity shaped by any mold other than Christ is to live beneath your privilege. I don't think you heard me. To have your identity shaped by any mold other than Christ is to live beneath your privilege. I don't think that Jesus came down to this earth to put on flesh just like us, to walk around, to have three years of ministry, then to go and have his brains beat in, to have his skin ripped off his back by the whippings, to be beaten, to be punched, to be mocked, to be scorned, to be shamed, to be made fun of, to have his beard ripped out of his face, to have a crown of thorns shoved down on his head, to have a cross laid across his back so he could drag it up a hill called Calvary, willingly lay down on it, have his hands nailed to it, have his feet nailed to it, and then have himself lifted up in front of the crowds of people to jeer at him, to breathe his last breath, to give his life, and then have a spear shoved through his side so that you can live beneath the privilege that you have in him. I don't think Jesus came to this earth to endure any of those things so that you could then put your identity in the garbage of this world. Jesus didn't endure all that. Jesus didn't go through all that pain. He didn't go through all that suffering so that you could live beneath the privilege that he has set forth for you. So stop giving yourself over to the garbage of this world. Stop having your identity found in the status of the world, in the things of the world, in the image the world says that you have to have. Stop having your identity established by somebody other than Christ. He gave his life for you. He endured all these things so that you could be found in him and have your own calling and have your own destiny and have a status that says I'm a co-heir with him. To have riches that this world could never touch. To have an image that bears his own image and to have your own life to live in him and for his glory stop living beneath your privilege as a son or a daughter of the king what molds are you pouring yourself into what molds do you need to break in your life so that you can start pouring yourself into the mold that Christ has formed for you thanks again so much for stopping by to listen to the message our prayer is that, if you don't already, you would come to know the love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus in a personal way. Following Him is the greatest choice you could ever make. Each week, we want to challenge you through the Word of God to continue walking in Christ and leveraging your life for His glory. So we hope that you will join us again next week for another impactful message here at Life.